Amen. So, uh, we, are, uh, we are in Acts chapter 6. This is a part of our, we're continuing our series called Unleashed, where we're looking at how the disciples were unleashed into the world, unleashed into a society, a culture that didn't believe in Jesus. And for the first time, the disciples in, in their lives, um, for the first time in their lives, are without Jesus, and they're trying to figure out what does it mean to be a Jesus follower in the midst of a culture that doesn't accept Jesus, in the midst of a culture that, that marginalizes and in some cases oppresses them. And they're trying to figure out how do you follow Jesus while engaging this culture and do this without Jesus sitting there and telling them what to do, Jesus telling them how um, how, how to go out on mission. Jesus telling them how to conduct their lives. They're not following him around anymore. They're having to figure this stuff out. And we've seen so far that, that Peter, uh, at least twice that we've seen, has spoken in front of crowds. Um, 5,000 have been converted. The church is sharing their possessions with one another. It says there's no needy amongst them. Uh, we've seen that the lame are healed uh, in a passage that we didn't cover. It says that, that so many people are being healed and the apostles have so much power um, that, that even just the shadow of Peter passing, pa- uh, passing over someone could lead to them being healed. And so tremendous works are being done, and we see that the church is growing, and the church is forming its identity, and it's got hiccups along the way, right, because uh, the apostles have been arrested twice now. One, one time, all of them were arrested, and they were all beaten for their faith and told to shut up, but they haven't shut up yet. They're still proclaiming the gospel, and they're still going out in the temple courts and going out around um, in the synagogues and other places and talking about Jesus. We've seen that the church has struggled, that widows have been overlooked in the food distribution. They've gone hungry and the church has had to figure that out. We've seen that, that even they've struggled with, uh, 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 with unrighteousness, with Ananias and Sapphira lying about how much money they've given to the church and being struck dead from that. And so we've, we've been brought to that point in, in, in last, uh, it's two weeks ago, last week was our, our Trunk or Treat Devo, but two weeks ago when we looked at the very beginning of Acts chapter 6, we saw that the way the apostles uh, dealt with the issue of some of the, the, the Christian widows being without food was they appointed seven men. They appointed seven men who were full of the spirit and full of wisdom who would then distribute food to the tables. And um, what's going to happen over the next couple of chapters is two of those men, Philip and Stephen, are going to be zeroed in on. And for the first time in the book of Acts, we're going to get to see the, the, the work, the ministry, the service of guys who weren't, this, who weren't apostles. Stephen was one of those guys, and for Acts chapter, for most of Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7, in the very beginning of Acts chapter 8, he is the focal point. And here is a guy... Who, who is so far is the most normal person highlighted in the book of Acts. There's no record that he walked with Jesus. There's no record that he saw the risen Jesus. There's no record that he was preaching to thousands of people and converting thousands of people. All we know about this guy, after the first few verses of Acts chapter 6, is he's a normal guy who had wisdom and was full of the Spirit. He was so in touch with Jesus, so in touch with God, that that permeated his life so much that people noticed it. And so when they had this huge issue that, that the church was, was potentially splitting over, where widows were going hungry because people weren't paying attention to them, he was one of the men that they put over that. He was one of the men that they entrusted with figuring out how they should distribute the food. And so Stephen, this very normal guy, is chosen for this, for this uh, very important task for the church, but we find out that he does a lot more than that. He ends up preaching and teaching. And for the next two, two chapters, Luke is going to give us just this little bit of insight into how someone who's not an apostle was conducting their life. Now you would be 
Um, it, it would be understandable if at this point in the book of Acts that you would think that the main people doing ministry were the apostles, that it was Peter and John going out and preaching, Peter and John going out and doing ministry. But we, but we learn from, from what we're going to see with Stephen that there were many more people involved in the work of the church. That you didn't have a few workers in the early church and the rest, people, rest of the people sat the pews. But that normal people like you, normal people like you who maybe had never seen Jesus face to face, were going out and talking to people about Jesus. And in fact, they wouldn't shut up about it. And Stephen, the most normal person we've seen highlighted in Acts so far, ends up being at the center of one of the hinge moments of the book of Acts. And it's not just the book of Acts, but he is going to give an insight, a view of God that's not only going to get him killed, it's going to change the very mission of the church. It's going to send the church out. It's the point at which Christianity turns from a few Jewish people living in Jerusalem, believing that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, and it becomes a global religion. Now, it's easy for us to get because Christianity is, is, is right there with Islam as the two largest religions in the world. Billions of people claim to be Christian. Hundreds of millions of people worship God on a Sunday morning, worship Jesus on a Sunday morning. And so you grew up in a context, I grew up in a context, in which Christianity was a world religion, it was a global religion. People from all over the world believe in Jesus. But at this point, it would seem absurd to think that, that Christianity would be a global religion. Why? Why is it, put yourself in these shoes, why would it be absurd if you were an early member of the church or maybe a Jewish person who was just watching the church grow, why would it be absurd to say that Christianity was going to be a global religion? Because we stand at the point, at this point in, in Acts, Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 7, where all of that changes, where the Christians are launched out in a few centuries, will spread throughout the known world. But at this point, that sounds absurd, Why? Jamie. I think at least in part because um, Judaism was never really a global religion and, it, and Christianity was that was never really intended to be something that different from Judaism. It was you know, the, the fulfillment of God's promises through that. Yeah, so I mean one thing is that Christianity is, is seen as, they, they see themselves as a fulfillment of Judaism. But Judaism was a, a, a you know, you think about the Old Testament. It's following people who are living in the ancient Near East who are living in, in the present-day Middle East, a little bit of Egypt, right? This is not a, a religion that's spanning the globe. It's not a religion that's, uh, that's spanning the known world. Judaism, their scriptures focus on a very narrow point. And the center of Judaism is Jerusalem. One spot in kind of a remote area in the Roman Empire that wasn't famous, that wasn't really well-known, that wasn't seen as a metropolis. So if you think of Christianity as being a subset of Judaism, of course you're going to think it's not going to be a world religion because Judaism isn't a world religion. Why else would it be absurd at this point to think that Christianity would be a world? Yes. It wasn't as easy to travel. Like they couldn't, they would, if they wanted to go to like the Americas, it would be really, really hard. And like at this point, Americas weren't even existent. Like yeah. They hadn't discovered them yet. So it was just really hard to imagine like taking this religion all the way from one side of Asia to the other. Yeah. It would take a week of travel. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean you so the amount of time it would take to travel. What else? Rome squashed anything that wasn't worshiping Caesar and they weren't 
it didn't look like they were going to end anytime soon. Yeah, so to get outside the confines of, of Rome, of what Rome allows, would be problematic. Uh, Judaism wasn't good at including other people. Yeah. It wasn't a converting religion. Yeah, Judaism was very exclusive. It, 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 there, there wasn't a strong missionary impulse. Yes? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's being persecuted. The leader's been killed. The, the 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 current leaders have been beaten and threatened with death. So you would think that. I mean, also think about this. Uh, where are the Christians located at this point? Anybody? Middle of nowhere. Middle of nowhere. Israel. They're all in Jerusalem. At this point, Christianity has not spread past Jerusalem. At this point, there's no record of Christians being anywhere other than Jerusalem. For Stephen to have the belief that Christianity is going to be a global religion is stupid because at this point all the Christians are in one city. And also think about this. Christians worship who? Just see if you're awake. Jesus, good, good. You're, you're following on last week. Um, so yeah, so, so Christians follow Jesus Christ. Where did Jesus travel? Just pretty much in, in kind of present day uh, Israel and Palestine, Right? Today I did the math, just for you guys, right? Basically, the square mileage was about 10,500 square miles that Jesus would have been somewhere around. In a world with 57 million square miles, right? And so Jesus lived on life. I mean, Jesus kind of moved and operated in 0.02% of the land and the, and the earth. And then you have Stephen saying that this religion is a religion for the whole world. Think about how absurd that is. It's a group of people who are fulfillment of Judaism, which was a very, very, very uh, kind of... Um, uh, which religion focused on one area, God's in the temple, following a man who lived in just a very small sliver of the world. And the followers are all located in one city of the world. And Stephen is at this hinge point where he says, no, 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 this isn't a religion that's just focused in Jerusalem. It's not a religion that's just focused in um, Israel. It's not a religion that's just focused in the Middle East. This is a religion that's intended for the whole world. And he's going to get killed for that insight, but that insight is going to send the church out into the world. And so Christianity would become the global religion it is today. And we need to listen to Stephen and see the insight that he has and see why he thinks this way in a culture that didn't think this way and, and frankly, in a church that didn't think this way. Months have gone by and the Christians have not been very anxious to get out of Jerusalem. And what is it that, that Stephen saw about God that made him want to go beyond the walls of Jerusalem? What is it that Stephen saw about God that made him want to, to, to keep God from being confined to just one city or one people group or one, one tiny country? What is it about God that made Stephen think that Christianity was a religion that, that needed and should spread, spread around the world and that Christians should participate in that? Now to see this, you have to kind of listen carefully to what's going on um, and, and what's being debated and we won't read all of this because it's quite long. Stephen's speech is the longest speech in the New Testament. We're not going to read it. But I will summarize it for you. And I want you to see what he's seeing, what his insight is, that, that makes, him see, makes him believe that Christianity should be a global religion, that Christians should be going out into all the world to talk about Jesus. So look at Acts chapter 6, um, <clears throat> starting in verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, 
who began to argue with Stephen. Now, the synagogue of the freedmen was probably a synagogue made up of, of Jews who had been enslaved previously elsewhere in the empire. They had somehow gotten, uh, gotten their freedom. Maybe their, their uh, masters let them go, but most likely that they saved up enough money to buy their freedom. And they moved back to Jerusalem and, and, and were attending a uh, synagogue that was made up of predominantly, again, Jews who were formerly slaves. Uh, there, there were scores of synagogues in Jerusalem, maybe hundreds of synagogues. And there were places where he would gather together to pray, to read the scriptures, to, to hear the te- scriptures being taught, and to have discussion. And so you get the picture that Stephen is involved in these synagogues, that he's going there, that they're talking about the scriptures, that he's proclaiming Christ. And, and it says, opposition arose, blah, blah, and, and, and these Jews begin to argue with Stephen. So he's in these synagogues, he's proclaiming Christ, they get upset, they begin arguing. And Stephen, um, Stephen, because of the wisdom the Spirit gave him, verse 10, but they could not stand up against the wisdom that the Spirit gave him as he spoke. So, so he's speaking, he's arguing, he's disputing with them, but they could not respond to it. They didn't have arguments against what he was going to say. And so they began to oppose him. Stephen, because of the way the Spirit was working in his life, was able to give from Scripture from arguments, from history, from, from uh, we don't really know what he's, what, exactly what he's saying, but he's, he's, he's proving to them the truth of Christianity. It says they have nothing to say. But notice, verse 11, Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Now, uh, this is for free, but one thing I want you to notice here is that, that um, being able to win an argument doesn't mean you've won someone over. Stephen at this point is standing up in these synagogues and he's winning the arguments. But these people, instead of converting, instead of saying you're right, instead of, instead of becoming a Christian, instead of worshiping Jesus Christ, that they begin opposing him and, 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 and slandering him, saying that he's blaspheming God, which was a penalty punishable by death under Jewish law. And so instead of being persuaded, instead of being converted, they just turn against him. This is important because I think a lot of times that, that, that we, we um, are fearful of evangelizing, fearful of sharing our faith, fearful of talking to people about God because we've, we worry that we won't have um, the right, that we won't know the right things to say. Or that if they ask a tough question or they present an argument or they object to something that we say, we won't know, we won't know how to respond. But notice that effective evangelism isn't winning an argument because if that was the case... Stephen would be effectively evangelizing, right? Winning an argument isn't the same as, as winning someone's heart. I remember um, there's been two guys in my life that I've spent months, months, months arguing with, both of whom grew up, in the, grew up uh, uh, as Christians, grew up in a Christian family, and then they, they lost their faith. And they had a lot of frustration with Christians, a lot of frustration with churches. And people had treated them poorly, people had been rude to them. And they, they had a lot of animosity, but I spent months with these guys talking with them. And because they were, both of whom were getting graduate degrees in the sciences, both of whom had, had, had uh, been reading a lot of, uh, of um, books by atheists against Christianity, um, they were both very focused on arguments against Christianity. And I spent months with these guys, um, drinking coffee, talking about Christianity, arguing with them. And, uh, and this isn't always the case that I win arguments, uh, but in this case, I won most of the time against these guys. I had read much more than they had on the topic. I had thought about these topics a lot harder than they had. 
And the truth is that, that, that even though I won the arguments, both of those guys to this day are still atheists. Because there's a huge gap between winning an argument and winning someone's heart. And I say that because just because you don't know uh, all the arguments, just because you don't know how to respond to this objection or that objection, doesn't mean that you shouldn't be sharing the, the gospel with people. Because the fact that you don't know the arguments isn't in the end going to be the most um, important thing about that encounter. Because hearts aren't changed by arguments. I mean, I think sometimes they have, they have an important role, right? But at the end of the day, hearts are changed by the gospel. And what you're called to do is proclaim the gospel. And what you're called to do is live a life that witnesses to the love of God. And that that, in the end, is what changes people. These people aren't changed because Stephen is smarter than them or wiser than them. Instead, um, instead, because he's winning the arguments, they get more angry. They get more frustrated with him. They turn and start spreading lies. And Stephen will end up being killed because of this. And so verse 12, um, they stirred at the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. Now remember, these are the people that, that, uh, before whom both uh, the apostles had gone before twice. The second time they had beaten them. These are the people that Jesus had gone before and had been killed. And so again, it's never outside of their mind that these people could kill them for their faith. And so Stephen goes up before the Sanhedrin and they produce false witnesses who testify saying, This fellow never stops speaking against, against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. So, in your own words, what is their accusation? What are they accusing Stephen of? Yeah, he's blaspheming uh, their, their religion. Uh, why? What, what is it that he's saying? That's or that, what is it they're claiming that he's saying that's offending them? Speaking against Moses, specifically the customs, um, the law. What? Um, what else? The holy place. The holy place was a big root for them, and just like Moses was, so to come against that. Um, just like any of us would be today, something that we felt strongly and have been taught our whole life. If you were to come back and say, hey, that's a lie, you know, this yeah. is wrong, wouldn't, most of us wouldn't handle that well. Yeah, so he's speaking, it's the holy place of the temple. The Sanhedrin met, I, I think, uh, on the, the western slope of the Temple Mount. And, and so um, when they say he's blaspheming against this place and Jesus Christ would tell him this place, um, they're speaking about the temple. Why would this get a, you, uh, Brad began addressing this, why would this uh, anger a Jewish person? To have someone speak against the customs of Moses, to have someone speak against the temple. The, the temple is the very place where God actually dwells. It's, it's not just like a church. Um, it, it is so much more than that. It is where God actually dwells among the Israelites. Um, like, only one guy got to go in once a year, and they tied a rope around his ankle in case God struck him dead while he was in there. It was a serious thing. Yeah. So the temple is the place where Yahweh dwells. It's, it's a place where the presence of God is, is, um, is the strongest. The sense where, where they're looking, and, and, and you can, as a Jewish person at this time, you could see the temple, and that was a sign that your God was present with you. That he was present with his people. 
And then following the laws, the customs that Moses held down, that your fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers and your family for centuries before have been following this. And these were the very laws, the very customs that Moses gave them. And in and, and, and this time in which the Jews are, um, the, the, the nation of Israel is controlled by the pagan Roman Empire, in which many Jews are living amidst, uh, amongst pagans, um, the, the, the teachings of Moses were, were incredibly important because it's what set them apart from, um, from the Romans. Uh, keeping the Sabbath, their food laws, circumcision were all signs that kind of separated them apart as we're not a part of the pagan group, we are part of God's people. And so if, if they say that Stephen's standing up and he's speaking against the customs and he's speaking against the temple, what you're hearing is our very identity, the very proof that we are God's people and that he's present with us. This guy's insulting. This guy's saying um, that, that these things no longer matter or that Jesus Christ is going to tear them down. Now, again, um, we don't know what Stephen said. Acts says that this is, these are false witnesses and that they're slandering him. So he didn't exactly say this, but you're going to find out, well, if you read the, the Stephen's speech, you would find out that what he said does have to do with Moses' law. And what, he's, what he says does have to do with the temple. So let me do this. Uh, instead, of, instead, of telling, instead of reading uh, Stephen's sermon to you, what, what I want to do is I want to just, um, in like 45 seconds, just summarize his sermon. And I want you to hear the main points that he brings out of it. Because he has a very specific thing he's trying to say. He has a very specific point he's trying to make. Because Stephen, what he's doing is he's confronting these religious people who, who think that God is confined to the temple. That God is confined to the people to whom the law was given. And he's going to challenge that. And he's going to confront that. And he does it again in the longest speech in the New Testament. And it's a speech that if you were to read it, you would probably be a little... Um, uh, this might sound irreverent, but you, you'd feel a little bored listening to it. Because it's really almost like an overview of the Old Testament. But if you read it that way, you're missing the point. Because Stephen is highlighting certain things about the Old Testament that he wants these guys to notice. And he starts off talking about Abraham. And he says that God, Yahweh, called Abraham when Abraham was still in Mesopotamia. And he made a promise of land and offspring to, to Abraham. And then Abraham's offspring ended up in Egypt. And they were enslaved in Egypt. And God raised up a person, Moses, who was born in Egypt and raised among the Egyptians. And he appeared um, to Moses in a burning bush and told Moses to go back to Egypt. Moses had escaped to go back to Egypt and get his people out of there. And so Moses sees God and experiences God probably somewhere around the Sinai Peninsula. They don't really know exactly where. Um, and then goes back to Egypt, and God's did, God does mighty works there. And then he pulls his people out of Egypt. He, he gets his people out of Egypt. And they wander in the wilderness. And while they're in the wilderness, they, they get the law. And while they're in the wilderness, um, they, 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 uh, they also oppose Moses. And it's not until they get to the promised land, and, send, and, and years, uh, generations after that, that they get a temple. And so Stephen lays out all these things that happened with Abraham and happened with the patriarchs and happened with Moses and happened with the people and, and with God calling Abraham in Mesopotamia and appearing to Moses uh, in the Sinai Peninsula and being with, uh, uh, oh, I forgot to mention this, that he mentions that there was a tabernacle with the people of, uh, of, of Israel while they wandered through the wilderness. So God gives them the law and he's present with them in the wilderness. And it's only later that Solomon builds the temple. And then after he mentions that, um, Stephen says this, he says, God cannot be contained in a temple. But instead, the whole heaven and earth 
is his throne. He says, heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool. And then he says to the Jews that you have always resisted God, and he calls them a stiff-necked people. And then it's because of that sermon that I just summarized that he's killed. Now again, if it sounds like an Old Testament summary, um, I mean, you could be forgiven for thinking it sounds like an Old Testament summary, but if you pay close attention to what he's highlighting, he's highlighting that God in the Old Testament Scriptures was not confined to the temple. God was not confined to a people. That Yahweh, who these Jews thought was present in this temple, had shown up to His people in Mesopotamia, had shown up to His people in Egypt, had shown up to His people in Sinai, had shown up to His people in the wilderness while they were wandering. wandering. He was present with them. And notice that Abraham and Joseph, whom he mentions, and Jacob, whom he mentions, and Moses for most of his life, all followed God before the law was given. And what's happening, and again, I know if you read the sermon, this isn't obvious, but what's happening is that Stephen is standing up to these Jewish religious leaders and he's saying that you think that God is confined to this temple and you think that God is confined to the people who follow the customs of Moses. But what you're missing is that our our God has always been, always been the God of this whole world. He cannot be confined to a place. He cannot be confined to a people group. And Stephen says this to them because he thinks that their understanding of a God is too small. And here's the thing, at this point, the Christians' understanding of God is too small. Because just like the Jewish people were not going out to the world, just like the Jewish people were not seeing people of other uh, ethnic groups as many people who should worship Yahweh, the Christians at this point are staying in Jerusalem and speaking to Jewish people. There's not been, as far as we can tell, a non-practicing Jew who is converted to Christianity, and we're a fourth of the way, I mean almost a third of the way through Acts. And Stephen stands up to these religious leaders and he says, if you really understood God, if you understood that Yahweh created this earth, if you understood that the whole world is His throne, then you would not confine God to this one location and you would not confine God to to this one people. Do you see the insight that Stephen has? He's speaking to people who had confined God and their lives were reflecting that because they didn't go out and share the news about Yahweh to others. By the way, that's not, uh, that, that's not because they understood the Old Testament. The Old Testament constantly talks about God's love of the whole world and that God wants the people of Israel to be a light to the whole world, to the nations. One of the most famous stories in the Old Testament is Jonah. And who was Jonah sent to? Nineveh. Was Nineveh, made up, was Nineveh full of Jews? No. No. Assyrians, right? The Old Testament is full of hints that God intends the whole world to worship Him. And yet His people at this time were confining Him to this location. And the Christians, the followers of Jesus at this time, were confined to one location. And Stephen gets an insight that our God is too big for that. And he stands up and he preaches that and he ends up being killed. Now the implication for this, and I think Luke wants you to see this implication because this is again the hinge point. Right after this, the church is scattered. The church starts going. It's after this that Samaritans are converted in Acts chapter 8. It's after this that an Ethiopian eunuch is converted in Acts chapter 8. It's after this that Paul is converted in Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 10, the first Gentile 
is converted in Cornelius. And so Luke wants you to see this moment and this insight of Stephen as a hinge moment because he wants the question to be pressed on you. Do you see God as being as big as He really is? Because if you understand that our God is the God of this whole world, then you don't want God confined to your church. You don't want God confined to your roommates or your friend group. That you realize that God is too big to only be worshipped by the people that you hang out with. The people in America, in South America, in Europe. That God is too big not to be worshipped in China and in the Middle East. That God is too big for, for, for students on this campus not to worship Him. And Stephen thinks that the reason that the Jews aren't going out at this, in, at this time and evangelizing the world is because they don't realize how big God is. And I think the implication is for us that in your life, if you don't feel a, a pressing need to share the gospel with your friends, a pressing need to share the gospel with your family who don't know Jesus, a pressing need to share the gospel with students on this campus who don't know Jesus, and a pressing need for some of you in your life to spend your life as a missionary sharing the gospel, then you do not understand how big our God is, then you are living as if our God is just meant to be confined to one group or one location or to the billion Christians or so who claim Him at this point. Now, if you would have asked any of these Jewish leaders if they thought that, that, the, that God was confined to the temple, they would say, no, He's the creator God. But the issue at this point is that their lives are such that it looks like they believe that. It, they're living as if the center of their religion is the temple. They're living as if the, 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 um, that the only people who should worship God is, are, are uh, the people who live um, like them. The, uh, sorry, I misphrased that. Are the Jewish people or those who are following the customs of Moses. And Stephen recognizes that that is not... Um, they're not living in a way that reflects what the Old Testament teaches. And I think that part of the way that reflects to us is that you could have grown up in the church and you could recognize that God demands to be worshipped by every person in this world. And if you are not actively evangelizing people, if you're not actively reaching the lost, then you're not letting that, that knowledge permeate your life. You're not letting it affect your life. What Stephen's after here is not... It's not some kind of knowledge about God that you could take a test and, yeah, yeah, God's the creator and rule of this whole world. But he's after knowledge that impacts your life so much that you want everybody you know to come to know God because God is their God. God is their creator and God rules the world that they live in. We all know that you, you can know things that don't affect your life. Um, no one, except for my dad, no one in my family cares about healthy eating. No one, <laughs> right? And so I grew up eating ham and bacon and hot dogs and... Um, Lots of chocolate and lots of cereal. And I still kind of eat that way. Um, but I, I can very well remember um, after my second uh, child was born, uh, uh, Owen, um, and he, he was a, he was a, a, a little uh, fat baby. And, um, and something happens like when you're a parent and you just start to realize that these, these, these kids depend upon you. Right? Like if I spend my money in stupid ways, it affects them. If I don't spend my time in certain ways, it affects them. And if I die early because of health problems, it affects them tremendously. 
And I can remember one night sitting at our kitchen table when we lived in Kentucky and just realizing that the way I was eating could have a pretty bad impact on my kids one day. And um, it wasn't at that point that I came to any new knowledge about nutrition, right? Um, it wasn't at that point that I was looking at studies and like, oh, well, if I keep eating bacon, this might not turn out well for me. <laughs> what happened at that moment is that this knowledge that I knew that I had known my whole life all of a sudden intersected with how I was living. And I knew that if I really believed that my diet could take years off my life and I really believed it was important for me to be around for my kids, then that should impact every day of my life. And what Stephen is pressing on you is if you really believe that God is the creator of this world, that's not just nice book learning, that's not just theological knowledge that you can tuck away and impress people with, but if you really believe that God's the creator of the world and wants everybody to be worshipped by Him, then that has to have an impact on your life. That has to mean that God cannot be restricted to any one location or any one people group. That you have to desire for God to be worshipped by every person you know. And that, that should start changing how you spend your time and how, what your conversations look like and how you interact with your friends. Stephen stood up and spoke these words to these people because he believed that. And he died for that. Because he thought that was an important enough truth to proclaim. And as we're going to see, the Christians thought that was an important enough truth that their whole lives would be changed and they would go out into the whole world and share the gospel. Let's stand and sing.